0: This is our new Asia series from Control Risks, where we bring you insights from our in-house experts on the most pressing political, economic, and security risks we see emerging in the Asia-Pacific. I'm Dane Chamaro, a partner in our Asia business. From our offices in Singapore, Shanghai, New Delhi, and elsewhere, our team of specialist consultants help businesses that are operating and investing amidst a whole manner of challenges. This ranges from political and regulatory analysis to vendor screening, strategic intelligence, crisis planning, and cyber response, just to name a few. Today we're talking about China, its growth prospects, and how it's affecting the rest of the world, as well as what the operational environment internally may look like as the COVID-19 crisis passes.
1: We need to rethink what the KPIs are for our supply chain professionals. Right now, it's cost. I don't care whatever you say. At the end of the day, they get a bonus and the pat on the back if they reduce the cost. And we don't think about any other resilience issues. We don't think about you know, redundancy geographically or what if this happened. And when we run supply chain resilience scenarios, the worst case scenario is two suppliers go down. The worst case has never been all of China goes down.
0: That and more coming up in this episode from Control Risk's Asia-Pacific team. Today, I'm speaking with Kent Kettle, who leads our Greater China-North Asia business based from Shanghai. Kent has more than 25 years of on-the-ground experience in China. He's helped companies invest there, restructure, in some cases leave, and he's also run his own company there. The team he leads provides our clients, both Chinese companies and multinationals, with tailored insight and problem-solving skills in what is one of the world's fastest growing, but also increasingly complex markets. For the last several years, at least one of our top five risks typically has involved China in some way, and quite often that hinges upon the prospects for China's economic growth and market opening. I began by asking Kent how he sees the rest of the 2021 timeframe playing out.
1: You know, we always have a difficult time in China with uh, what is the official number and what is the finger quotes real number, and that really isn't as important. I mean, we always say to clients, "Listen, GDP doesn't matter." <laughs> I mean, you know, unless you're doing some financial uh, types of betting or things like that, it really comes down to the to the sector and more to the point of where you fit it in the in the supply chain. So, the companies that are doing well right now are those whose supplier and immediate customer who determines the demand are both in China. Those who are, say, tier two, tier three suppliers to an OEM who has a global business our client may not export, but you know they build a compressor that is sold to an engine manufacturer who then exports that or does something local with it. The en- engine manufacturer doesn't determine the demand, the OEM does. And so, um, they're having a harder time of it, even though they've stood up their supply chains just like a food manufacturer has whose direct customers here. So, I've, I've been talking mostly to a lot of our food clients, and healthcare clients. I mean, those are the kind of the two areas that we always, you know, think of as being recession-proof. Uh, again, finger quotes around that. Um, and so, if you're selling PVE and you're selling equipment to hospitals and things like that, uh, you know, it's going gangbusters. Uh, I was talking to a client last week, CEO of a company that sells equipment into into surgeries for elective procedures. They're having a terrible time because everybody, nobody is electing to go through surgery at this time. So so we're, we're trying to keep a, not completely granular, but a mid-granularity mid on, on seeing what the recovery is going to be. Um, and it really is gonna be depending on, on who you talk to. Some I think are gonna be doing very well, others are not. The The one consistency across that is everyone says it's impossible to predict. It could be fine this month and the bottom completely falls out next month just because of where the global supply chains are are recovering.
0: So you're saying that that's the fall off in demand. That's the impact of the fall off of global demand, where it's very hard for the companies in China to predict what that demand will look like going forward. I thought your comment about GDP doesn't matter. That's a great kind of takeaway in the sense that, as you rightly point out, we've all often said that even if GDP is really at five or four or six, your sector or that city, that place that you're in may be growing at 15 or should be growing at 15 if you're doing everything right. So the, the the overall GDP number is is in many ways irrelevant. You talked a lot about the local business environment. What are we seeing from the perspective of competition? So is it staying the same? Is it getting more intense? Will there be more opportunities there because uh, certain companies won't survive? What, what do you think that's gonna look like or what are you seeing so far?
1: Well, yeah, it's a good question, and it's actually a question a lot of our clients are talking about: the new normal, the next normal, the non-normal, the unnormal, uh, you know, whatever you call it. It's not going to be like it was before. And one of the big questions is: is what's your competition? Um, and yes, there's kind of a binary question: are they still alive? Are they not? The other question is: have they figured out the market sooner than you have? Do they have the product? Do they have the solution, the service that's that is going to be in demand? Um, all companies, when they look at their demand on recovery, the demand. demand, Demand is going to be spotty. There's going to be certain solutions, certain products that the market is going to demand first. Well, those are your low-hanging fruit to to aid your recovery. Um, If your competition has discovered that sooner than you have. that's that's a real threat to you. One of the big questions that clients are asking is, what is going to be the behavior of their competitors in the market? Um, And these are mostly kind of local companies, Chinese companies, who don't have the same requirements of compliance that a multinational will have. They're always struggling against competitors who are using bribes and kickbacks and things like that in the market. We think it's going to be a bigger issue even uh, now in recovery because these local companies are going to be even more desperate for business. They're going to be clawing their way back just like multinationals are, and they're going to be using every tool that they possibly can. We're talking with a client right now about going out and saying, okay, is the competition really doing this in the market? If they are, what's the percentage of difference it makes? Are they giving a 3% kickback? Okay, you can compete against that. Are they giving a 20% kickback? All right, that's tougher to compete against. And so helping the client kind of craft their competitive strategy based on the intel that we gather on that competitor.
0: And and so you touched upon also the regulation, and we know that China over the last 10 years particularly, but certainly in the last five since Xi Jinping has been there, has become a more complex and difficult operating environment from a regulatory perspective in all ways, not just the ethical compliance that you touched upon, but also things like environment and labor. I've seen some people say that, oh... For the rest of the year, at least, China will kind of go easy on that because they know that the businesses need to recover mm-hmm. and they want the economy growing. And so they're going to kind of ease off on the regulatory uh, enforcement. Yeah. And there's also woven in there is some insinuation about how those rules are applied. So are they disproportionately applied, for example, to foreign companies as opposed to local companies, which you also kind of just touched upon? So what do we what do we think that looks like going forward for the next 6 to 18 months is it going to be radically different is it still going to be complicated? Will Chinese companies kind of still have a quote-unquote advantage over foreigners?
1: It depends on the um, on the sector. There are certain things that the authorities are going to be continuing to uh, enforce, uh, we think. And remember, the regulatory enforcement was not just because Xi Jinping woke up one morning and said, hey, I want to start enforcing laws. They wanted to clean up the environment. They wanted to clean up food safety. I think there was a lot of honesty behind wanting to clean up corruption as well. Now, you know, what was the final result is a, is a question. But so those motivations have not changed. You know, just like the motivations in made in China 2025, even though they don't talk about it anymore, the motivations are still there. and And so we're going to see the behavior of the authorities moving in that direction. How aggressive are they going to be is another question. We think they might back off on some of the anti-competition, abusive dominance type of thing in vertical price control, uh, in areas like construction. We think, though, that they are going to probably keep that pressure on in the healthcare sector, particularly medical device, uh, where there's a lot of Chinese companies waiting to kind of get in, and the uh, foreign companies really do have a lot of control over that. And sometimes it's not legitimate control either. They set up very non-competitive kind of behaviors. And so uh, you know the accusations that the authorities have had against foreign companies have, have been true at times, or kind of true. But if you look at what they've been enforcing, they've been enforcing things quite strongly on local companies. The, the healthcare sector has gotten hit. The tech sector has gotten hit. Um, and we've seen it in anti-competition, abusive dominance. We've seen uh, anti-corruption. Uh, we've certainly seen environment. We're still seeing cyber enforcement, particularly data privacy, data security. Um, and a lot of those are on the local companies. Now that has been a theme over the past eight years of Xi Jinping is that they they kind of, they hit the local companies and then they open it up to everyone. And again, my, I've, I've, I always say that I don't think Foreign companies are being targeted, but foreign companies are more vulnerable. Therefore, it takes on the feeling that they're being targeted just because they don't know how to handle it as well. Whereas a, a Chinese company is is pretty used to doing this. So um, we're telling our clients, do not relax your guard. As a matter of fact, increase your monitoring. Don't don't increase your paranoia until you actually have some intel that says, yes, you know, now is the proper time to, to freak out. Um until that time, just increase your monitoring, increase kind of looking at this. And we're doing that for a number of companies so they can kind of keep the keep the flow going, focus on what they need to focus on. And then at the appropriate time, okay, let's shift our focus to some of the environmental regulatory because it looks like it's it's kind of heading our way.
0: So that's a good point. The monitoring, which we often see our clients, um, perhaps unless, unless they are under some kind of scrutiny or have recently been under some, some kind of scrutiny, I think perhaps we see them not paying enough attention to or investing enough resources in, but it's absolutely key to knowing what might befall you or your industry next. Um, You mentioned China 2025, and that's something that we heard a lot about for a while, and then we stopped hearing about. And it affects a few key sectors, but as we know, a few key key sectors formally in terms of what resources are made available and, and what's prioritized, but as we also know, uh, if you're a Chinese corporate, it's a great kind of gravy train to be attached to if you can justify your sector, your corporate participation. So we haven't heard a lot about it recently, but has it gone away?
1: No, goodness, no. It's it's still there. And it's certainly the 10 sectors that are named there, but it still is a motivation. I, I think the Chinese authorities kind of got beat up on it on a global stage because, you know, the trade war and things like that. And 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 there's some aggressive language in there. Um not any more aggressive than anybody else's, you know, kind of global plans are, but but everybody was sensitive to China at the time. And the, the, the two main things, China wants to become independent in technology and a market leader in technology, but they also want to become commercial market leaders. And this is the piece that we often miss. We focus on the technology. We miss the commercial market leaders. They want Chinese companies to lead certain sectors and not just China domestic. They want them global leaders. Um, Now, that has a positive circle here that that, you know, if they're global leaders, then that means that they'll they'll be developing and and maintaining technology that China Inc. ultimately will 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 own. Um, So, yeah, I, I think it's a very real thing out there. Again, the the difficulty is how is it being applied? Um, we always say, don't listen to what the authorities say, watch what they do, watch what's happening. And so uh, going back to your question about competition, are your competitors getting access to these funds? If so, how are they applying them? How, how is it helping them out? Um, is it speeding their their time to market? Is it providing them a little bit more of an edge on technology? You know, You really need to understand those things quite well.
0: So that brings me to one of my favorite words, which is decoupling. Both sides have kind of used that theme in different ways. So you just touched upon in 2025, we wanna become independent in certain technical fields, i.e. we want to decouple particularly from North American, American technology suppliers. We wanna have our own domestic capabilities with targets assigned to those. Uh, and then ultimately we wanna become, as you said, you know, commercial global leaders in these key sectors I don't think that they really use the word decoupling, but certainly in the U.S. environment, we use the word decoupling. Given the scale of China, how realistic is it to really say we're going to decouple in this space from what is not only a huge supplier, but also a huge market?
1: Yeah, and, and I think we have to remember that the word decoupling is a political word. I mean, it's used by politicians and used by media who naturally want to, but need to simplify things for a for a certain, you know, voter or readership or something like that. Uh, the reality is a heck of a lot more, more complicated. We're always in the process of coupling and decoupling. That's, that's what's missed. You know? In the last 10 years, the apparel industry has decoupled from China almost completely. I mean, it's that that stuff has moved on to Southeast Asia. It's moved on to parts of Africa. It's there is very little. Dongguan is and Zhuhai are completely different places now. Um, down, down south, um, some electronics is still there, but I have a lot of electronics. A lot of toy manufacturers, things like that, have already moved on. That wasn't a, you know, we didn't talk about decoupling at that time. It was just a kind of a natural, a natural shift. The challenge here is is really understanding the nature and and the mechanics of your own supply chain. If your suppliers in China and your customers in China, you're not going to manufacture in Bangladesh. Just not okay. So what you might do is actually because China is such an important revenue generating part of the world, you may decouple from the rest of the world for that particular supply chain. Like I said at the beginning, the companies that were able to stand up quickly were those whose, whose suppliers and demand were both in China. They stood up quickly when the rest of the world fell apart. Those that stood up more slowly were those whose both supply and demand was coupled with the rest of the world. If they would have been more China focused, they would have been back up on their feet immediately because the demand was was certainly here. So I think, um, I, I think we will see companies looking a little bit more at regionalization of supply chains. A lot of clients I talked to said we have one supplier for this thing in China. We need another supplier. Well, they just found another one in China. Well, okay, that technically, you know, if, if that supplier goes down, that's fine. But what if, God forbid? All of China goes down well you 're screwed, and this goes to the motivation behind those that are supply chain professionals and Another uh, CEO client of mine said this to me said we need to rethink how we what the kPIs are for our supply chain professionals right now it 's cost i don 't care whatever you say at the end of the day they get a bonus and the pat on the back if they reduce the cost, and we don 't think about any other resilience issues we don 't think about you know redundancy geographically, or what if this happened, and when we run supply chain resilience scenarios, the worst case scenario is two suppliers go down. the worst supply, worst case has never been all of China goes down, and so the CEO was saying, we need to rethink this, we need to rethink how we do it and that has yeah something to do with coupling or decoupling it has something to do with the politics of it, uh, but it, um, it, it also talks about you know supply chain resilience. In a increasingly uh, unified world, uh, you know, you and I were both around here in 2003 during SARS, and the world was not as impacted by SARS. It, it was a China slash Asia thing because China wasn't as integrated in the global supply chain. In the last 17 years, it has become much more integrated. Well, if you want to decouple, I don't care how much you desire it, you're not going to unwind that. You know, in in a couple of months. If, you, if it took you 20 years to build, it's gonna take a while to, to unwind. So let the politicians use that, let the journalists talk about that, that's fine. I think you know those of us who are in business need to look for the detail and look for the granularity of what it really means for this specific supply chain and, and what makes sense geopolitically from a redundancy, from a global crisis perspective. There's all sorts of threats that we, we need to think about.
0: So just to recap some of Ken's top points, he said that China's business recovery is going to be spotty and it will depend largely on the sector and the part of the country that you're in. But you're better off if you're reliant on China demand for your business than external demand to watch the competitive landscape because local companies, particularly who are struggling to survive, may engage in aggressive malfeasant behavior, such as kickbacks to buyers, and that can change the competitive landscape against you. And that KPIs for supply chains going forward will have to change from a focus that's purely on cost to one that is now more centered around resilience. Thank you all for listening. This was another In Our New Asia podcast series, and we'll be back with more in the coming days. In the meantime, please go to our website, controlrisks.com, for more analysis, or you can subscribe to all our podcasts on Acast, iTunes, or Spotify. Just search for Control Risks.